Welcome, spooks and spirits, ghouls and ghosts. Take a seat around the campfire. But beware, this podcast is haunted. All right. Hey, everybody. Hello, hello. Hello, everyone. This is an interesting format that we're doing today. Yeah, yeah. Um, Uh (laughs) We have... A special guest later in the episode um, that I pre-recorded, but um, I thought I'd give y'all some some pre pre background information so that you're not as confused later when we're when you're hearing the interview that I have. Um, <laughs> so, who is it that you were speaking with later? Yes. Um, so, uh, remember, like a long time ago, I think I mentioned it on the podcast where uh, back when I was in Cooperstown, and I was like, "Hey, you'll never guess what happened." There's a film filming at Hyde Hall, the the old haunted house that I worked at, and I got to be an extra in the in the movie. Do you, That's do you... right. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that movie is now out. <laughs> it is out on the streaming service Shutter, uh, which I have Shutter. Oh my gosh! You do? I I, yes, I. Oh, I think so because they also did the vampire books that I read. Discovery yeah. of witches. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so I, it's um, it's the horror uh, genre genre channel. Yeah, channel. Uh, it's S H U D D E R. It's also an add-on to Amazon Prime if you don't want to like go through a whole rigmarole to get another streaming service. So right, which does get old, and also sometimes you forget which ones you have. Like I forgot that I had Shutter until right now. There you go. Yeah. So check it out. Um, it's called, the movie is called A Nightmare Wakes. Um, and it is written and directed by Nora Uncle. Um, yes, female directors. Female director, female writer. Uh, it, we had such a great, lovely conversation. I'm so glad Nora was able to come on the podcast. And you will hear that uh, interview later. Um, and yeah, if you uh, feel inspired to check out the movie, please do. You'll catch a glimpse of me for like, <laughs> like two or three seconds here and there. That's super cool. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I've, yeah, I've seen it twice already, um, and it's a lovely, lovely film. Um, it is, um, if you're used to only seeing big blockbuster films, please know that this is an indie film. So, don't expect as uh, much like high budget, like bells and whistles, as you might see in like The Conjuring or something. But I think it is still, it's a very kind of contemplative, uh, kind of moody, uh, you know kind of like focuses on the dread aspect of horror and so i think yes so what's the story about so the story is about mary shelley oh yes and it's about mary shelley and what inspired her to write uh her novel frankenstein and it is mostly um it it I'm going to do like a brief like uh, history on Mary Shelley. Um, if you watch the film, you'll you'll uh, recognize bits and pieces from what I'm about to tell you. Um, it is, you know, in, in true like film tradition, they kind of like uh, take some liberties with the exact historical record. But, you know, it it, it tells it in a really interesting way. Um, so, yeah, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually don't know very much about Mary Shelley herself. Even mm-hmm. though Frankenstein is one of my favorite novels, um, if you guys haven't had a chance to read the actual novel Frankenstein, 
not just watch the movies. The movies, um, especially the Boris Karloff version, mm-hmm. are very, 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 very different from the source material. Yeah. Um, Frankenstein is kind of a study of humanity mm. uh, as opposed to a, st- a monster movie. I mean, the monster is a monster. He kills people. Yeah. But, uh, it, you know, there's a lot of that going around. <laughs> uh, you should yeah. definitely check it out. It's a great novel. Um, I also have a pop-up book version of it. Uh, and that's <gasps> super fun. I know. Uh, and then if you also want to watch uh, fantastic versions, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. I was and... just about to say. Yeah, remember we went and saw that? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So that was Jen... so fun. Did you see both nights with me or just the one night? I think I just saw the one. Okay. So I went back and I watched the other version with Johnny, whatever. Um, <laughs> we apologize. He's a great actor. I just don't remember his name. At yeah, the, the, the other guy who played American Sherlock on the show Elementary. Oh, and then, I didn't realize. Yeah, and then wow. Benedict Cumberbatch, who played <laughs> British Sherlock, uh, and they swap roles every other night. Mm. Uh, so one night you're the monster and one night you're Dr. Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, and I genuinely found Johnny Whatever's performance as the monster to be a little bit better uh, than Benedict's. Um, okay. Well, I, I found Benedict more believable as Victor Frankenstein. I guess I saw the wrong version then. Because I saw yeah, the Yeah, well, the see, the trouble one. is, is that you should go to movies with me all the time. And not just pick and choose. <laughs> all right. So anyway, um, yeah, love Frankenstein. But I really don't know that much about Mary Shelley. Like, I know that her mother, mm-hmm. uh, Craft. Well, yeah, yeah. Do you want me to tell you? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. You just, how about you go through and yeah. I'll shut the fuck up. Well, I'm so glad that you said that you know more about Frankenstein than Mary Shelley because I got to the part where she wrote Frankenstein and I was just like, you know the rest. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't read Frankenstein in high school or if you haven't read it since high school or if you haven't seen any of the, the play, I think is probably the most faithful adaptation of the book. Um I highly recommend you give it uh, a go because I think uh, I haven't really seen any of the like monster movies in a while, but like it's it's a different like the Universal monster movies. Yeah, yeah. We should it's... definitely sit down and watch those. We should, um, but it's a different kind of story <laughs> than the original uh, book. So anyway, I hope you read it. Anyway, so uh, so Mary Shelley, uh, as you were. Uh, alluding to uh, she is the child of uh, William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft Um, that's the name you were searching for there we go so I was like thinking back to women's lit freshman year yes yes what was it you're like I don't Oh, searching for it. Yeah. So Mary Wollstonecraft, if you don't know, uh, she is a well-known uh, advocate for women's rights uh, in the 18th century. Yeah, so, she's like way early. Yeah, like kind of proto-feminist. Um, feminist movement did not exist at the time. So she was very unique for her time. She wrote um, A Vindication of the Rights of Women which is uh, known as one of the first feminist publications. Um, And uh, she also had a kind of radical personal life. She had, like, believed that, uh, you know, women were, you know, worthwhile as human beings uh, beyond their roles and and societal expectations. So she didn't let society stand in the way of her having affairs with men um, as she wanted to which is great. Uh, she Get that vitamin D. 
exactly she was like yeah this is this is doesn't matter um so she had she did have a daughter uh fanny imlay with uh with a man she was not married to george imlay who is an american adventurer um she's she's english uh but she spent time in france which uh and was they like there during the french revolution it was pretty intense wow um, yeah yeah was friends with uh thomas Paine uh, and survived the guillotine <laughs> so uh but she went she went back to england where she met william godwin who was a political philosopher he was he believed in utilitarianism and he was also an anarchist um and kind of a radical thinker himself um and so he he met mary wollstonecraft and he was like you're totally radical too let's get together um they uh they were together as a couple for a little while um and then and conceived (laughs) a child (laughs) illegitimately um and then but they kind of realized that like okay we are living the way we want to in society but we don't necessarily want to make those choices for our child so they decided to actually get married so that their child would be like seen as legitimate in the eyes of english society um and that child is of course mary godwin so she was born in 1797 um oh yeah so so william godwin um he believed in the abolition of marriage um and so after uh even though he did end up marry marrying mary wollstonecraft they lived in two adjoining houses (laughs) Actually, my one of my favorite professors mm-hmm. and her husband took that model. They bought one tract of land and they oh. bought two houses connected by a dining room. Mm. And like, or, or maybe not like a dining room, but like a shared like picnic space. Like it's sure. two separate houses, though, mm-hmm. on one tract of land. Uh, and they have separate billing systems. They manage their money separately, but they're still a unit. And, like, he's a potter, and he, like, keeps this filthy house, and mm-hmm. she's super type A, and, like, keeps all of her notes and drafts and, like, papers in meticulous order. And they wouldn't have worked, their their marriage wouldn't have last, mm-hmm. lasted uh, had they lived together. And I think that's really cool, like, yeah. to be able to be like, oh, just you be over there. Right. And there you go. Yeah. I mean, I think I think a lot of people do really benefit from living together and, and can live together well. Um, but I think there's nothing wrong with understanding what is going, what system is going to make your relationship work. Yeah. <laughs> and just doing that. Um, so, and yeah. that your relationship is under no obligation to look like everybody else's. Yes. Yeah. They kind of, they just, they got married, um, but they, they made that marriage what they wanted it to be. So uh, at a time when nobody else was doing that. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's plenty of married couples who are living apart, but I think the fact that they did it so consciously, I, so early in their relationship meant that they weren't living apart because they couldn't stand each other. Uh, They still actually had a lot of, you know, affection for each other and would pass notes to each other like <laughs> between the houses and probably frequently visit each other and all that. Uh, but that's just what they decided that they wanted. Uh, but unfortunately, their marriage didn't last very long because uh, so they they got pregnant before getting married. Um, and then uh, Wollstonecraft actually died 11 days after giving birth to 
her daughter Mary. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, uh, it was the old complications from childbirth thing. Ugh. Which is terrible. Um, and ironic. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> to kill off, like, one of the earliest feminists in history through childbirth. Yeah. Yikes. Yes, 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 yes. Godwin was, uh, of course, devastated, and he actually published a biography of Wollstonecraft uh, shortly after her death, where he he revealed that um, her first daughter, uh, Fanny, was born illegitimate, uh, which uh, did ruin <laughs> Mary Wollstonecraft's reputation for decades. So I guess, good job, dude. I don't think he intended that. <laughs> well, of course not. He wasn't thinking because it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have affected him. Right. Yeah. He well, was maybe like, that's unfair. I think he was like, ah, oh, man, this was such an incredible woman and she was gone too soon. And like, let's, I mean, I haven't read it, so I don't know what he wrote, but like, <laughs> I got the impression that he really loved and admired her. So I don't think he would intentionally try to besmirch her name or anything, but that no, was certainly not the consequence. But, right. I think, um, especially men, Mm. who who live in a completely different society that has different rules than women mm-hmm. you know men had illegitimate children up and down england uh, it was it was a fact of life yeah um and, kings had and, illegitimate tri- children all the time so right exactly um it was total totally everybody understood it was fine everybody looked the other way and women didn't get the same privilege. Mm-hmm. And so he would think nothing of, and this is me being a little bit grumpy, um, <laughs> he would think nothing of announcing that she had an illegitimate child because if he had announced that he'd had an illegitimate child, it wouldn't have mattered. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, in the benef- with the benefit of historical hindsight, we can look back and be like, yeah, it's not a big deal that she did this. But at the time, everyone was very scandalized. Um but Godwin does remarry. Um, he marries his neighbor, Mary Jane Claremont, um, who had two children from her previous marriage, um, Charles and Claire Claremont. Um, wow. And so, uh, the, uh, so Mary Godwin grows up uh, in a very blended family with uh, three different um, siblings. Like, well, okay, so Fanny was her half-sibling, um, and then um, two step-siblings. Um, so this is a very kind of like unique way to grow up. And, and keep in mind that the, this is the, the time period is very early 1800s. <laughs> so like so we're just getting past the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then King George is starting to go mad. We're heading into the Regency. Yes, yes. So here comes uh, Mr. Percy Baishi. Shelly? I never know how to pronounce it. I never know how to say it either. I've always gone with bitch Shelly. (laughs) Funny you should say that. (laughs) Okay, so... So Percy... And I'm I'm referring to basically everyone by their... Well, I'm referring to Mary and Percy by their first names because they would... You could interchangeably call each of them Shelly from history, and it's just confusing. So I'm just calling them Mary and Percy. Um. So Percy is uh, from an aristocratic family, um, but he is a poet. He's a romantic. Um, he's he, a libertine. He's, he's a hedonist. He's got some crazy ideas. <laughs> but um, not of the crazy principles. Um, you know, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was an, uh, a principled thing about, like, the freedom of individuals. He was mm-hmm. just looking to get his dick wet, is my opinion of Percy Bitch Shelley. <laughs> 
<laughs> I feel like I, I, I'm, I'm not going to deny that. Um, <laughs> so you, things are going to get messy. Things are going to get yes. real messy. Um, so um, he, yeah, like I said, he's from an aristocratic family, but he's kind of, he's kind of, he loves to love. He loves to be in love. Um, he was married to a woman named Harriet something. Um, I'm kind of going out of order, but that's fine. Um, so he, he kind of elopes with, with Harriet initially. Um, and his family cuts him off because, uh, you know, reasons. And he like also meets another woman who has like an intense platonic relationship with him. He's kind of like all over the place forever. Um, and And I don't find that charming. Me neither. I think it's fine if you're... 16, 17. Well, he is fairly young at the time. Um, He's like maybe 19, 20-ish. And, you know, I don't... This is this is the part of the problem with um, doing history is you don't quite know if this is like you don't know how to prescribe people's um, personalities or behavior or sexual orientations. Like I think it's pretty clear that he met that monogamy was not for him. Um, you know, was he polyamorous? Which, to be was clear, he, you know, I don't have a problem with people who are poly because right. actually poly can be one of the healthiest relationship styles mm-hmm. because it's based on mutual honesty. Yes. And like really like getting feelings out there and talking it through. And yeah, it can anyway. I mean, there's others like, you know, way out in Utah, way out <laughs> in the back country who, who don't do polyamory with with a with a big healthy dose of consent. Yes. Uh, but those who who are polyamorous with healthy consent and healthy communication, mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with that. You right. Know? Yeah, and I think um, I think that's like our main source of frustration with Percy is that uh, is not that he m- may have been Polly. It's more that um, if he was, he didn't do a good job of like getting consent from all parties, right? <laughs> or like the, he got consent, but it was not enthusiastic consent. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So he's with this woman, Harriet. Um, they like kind of get married a second time to make sure it's legitimate because they like kind of. They have children together, and, like, I I didn't really look as far into this as I uh, could have because I'm trying to be quick. <laughs> um, but so he's married to Harriet um, in 1814 and kind of, like, um, I don't know, gets bored or, like, just basically regrets marrying Harriet basically as soon as he does it. And he kind of abandons her. Um, and, and this is why we don't like him. Um, right. This is <laughs> so, not cute behavior. This is not cute. Um, and he he is starting to read um, different political writings, and he encounters William Godwin, um, and he like basically falls in love with you know his philosophy and politics and decides he like writes this letter to william godwin saying like i will become your devoted disciple just let me come be with you and i will just like learn from you and you know do whatever you need me to do so he kind of he he moves to be close to godwin to learn from him and that's when he meets mary um Mary. Yay! Yay! <laughs> so, so Mary is sixteen at the time. He's twenty-one. Um, you know, it's uh, it's fine. Um, 
So uh, he's clearly not as mature as some 21-year-olds can be. Um, who knows? Um, right. Yeah. I've never met actually any mature 21-year-olds. I was not a mature 21-year-old. Yeah, I feel like the mature 21-year-old is kind of a myth. <laughs> Your brain's uh, not done forming yet. You're just a still, creature of mythology, if ever there was one. You're still goo. It's fine. Um, so he meets uh, Mary in March of 1814, and they quickly begin a relationship. They uh, began meeting secretly at the grave of Mary's mother, <laughs> Mary Wollstonecraft. <laughs> Which is, you see, like Tumblr posts about Mary Shelley being like the most goth girl ever. And I, like, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. So they, they meet frequently um, at this grave site. And at one such meeting, Percy declares his ardent passion for Mary and she returns the feelings. And, um, and uh, essentially, the next day, they consummate their affair, also likely on Mary Wollstonecraft's grave. So like, just to just to take the fanciness out of that, they done <laughs> fucked on her mama's grave. She yeah. lost her virginity, possibly, probably, <laughs> probably on her mama's grave. <laughs> I mean, I'm down for some cemetery screwing. That is, but damn, that is on your mother's grave. Like that is. But honestly, like notch. thinking of who her mother was, she probably was like, "Get it, girl." She wouldn't mind. <laughs> I mean, I feel like any mother would be like a little weird out by that but right right if anyone's going to uh be fine with it it's probably mary wollstonecraft uh (laughs) so they kind of uh they they tell william godwin about their relationship and he disapproves uh which surprises mary um but he uh like i said before he was kind of like trying to uh, preserve her reputation in society he was like it's all well and good for me to be who i am and who your and your mother to be who she is was but like i want to give you a chance <laughs> to like be proper and mary's just like no <laughs> right mary's like what if fuck that what if i just do whatever i want and like to be fair she is a teenager at this point so i could definitely see why a father would be like no don't run off with the philandering poet <laughs> so yeah, so he does not approve, um, and uh, he kind of like says, "If you're gonna be together, then you're I'm, you're not gonna get any support from me." And so they, uh, so Percy and Mary elope in July of 1814, oh. which is like less than half a year since they met. <laughs> Just like getting getting right down to business. Getting right down to business. Also, they elope. He's not. He's still married, so great. So this is gonna—he's gonna be a bigamist now. Yeah, yeah. It's not like official. Um, I didn't write down. At some point later, um, Harriet, his actual wife, does die, and so they do get married for realsies. Um, but I—I I forget what year that is, and I didn't write it down. Um, so anyway, so they elope, <laughs> and they secretly uh, leave for France. Um, and Mary's stepsister, Claire, joins them. Um, they kind of travel the continent for a while doing that bohemian thing. <laughs> Mary quickly becomes pregnant. Uh, oh. <laughs> um, William Godwin refuses to send money uh, because he's mad and wants her to come home and give up this um, affair that she's having. Um, they end up in Switzerland uh, where... 
they kind of meet up with some of Percy's school friends, uh, Thomas Jefferson Hogg. <laughs> what a fucking great name. <laughs> and Thomas Love Peacock. Another great name. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Mary is not having a great time with her pregnancy. They hear that Percy's wife, Harriet, has given birth to a son, which Percy's super stoked about. I think at some point he leaves. I think he. this is like when he leaves to like officially marry Harriet so that their son is like considered his heir. Um, I don't, I'm not exactly sure of the timeline, but um, this is obviously not great for Mary. Um, also, Percy and Claire are spending a lot of time together um, and almost certainly having an affair. Great. <laughs> and she, so Mary uh, is kind of turning to um, Percy's friend, Hog. <laughs> <laughs> who uh, she uh, comes to uh, see as a good friend. Uh, Percy seems to have wanted Mary and Hogg to become lovers. This is, I think, so Percy, I think, was like part of the free love movement. And so right. He, he was, I, I think he was either considered a libertine or a hedonist. Yeah, yeah. Which is the free love. Free love was more 1969, summer sure. of love. Right. Um, and then just before that, the whole idea was called either libertine or hedonist yeah uh, not all hedonists had like a sexual mm-hmm. aspect but i think all libertines did okay yeah he is um definitely i mean he at least he's like open to mary having other um relationships so right. i guess that's good um there's nothing worse than when you're like um a man doing whatever you want but then your wife isn't allowed to do what she wants like yes that's bullshit so Percy's like, yeah, go be with Hog. That's totally fine because I'm having, like, I'm married and also having another affair. Um, and she, I mean, she was friends with Hog, but, and maybe flirted occasionally, but seems to not really have any more desire than that and only really loved Percy. Um, in 1815, she gives birth to a two-month premature daughter who did not survive. Sad. Yeah, this is going to be a running theme. Um, and the loss of her baby uh, drove her into a depression um, where she was haunted by visions of the baby. Because um, it was like, it. well, I don't want to get too grotesque about it, but like it wasn't, it wasn't like a stillbirth or anything. So it was like no. alive and then it wasn't alive. Um, right. So. And she's failure to thrive, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Because two months premature in the 1814 is, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of help for that. There's no incubation. No, there's, there's no not a lot intubation. Do. Yeah. <sighs> That's sad. It was very sad. Um, she did conceive again not long after um, and gave birth in January 1816 to a son that she named William, um, who's nicknamed Will Mouse. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, and so now we find ourselves in the summer of 1816, which is also known as the year without summer. Yes. Which 1816 didn't have a summer because of Krakatoa, right? Mount Tambora. Mount Tambora. There we go. Yes. Um, so that is a volcano in Indonesia that erupted the year before, which basically blocked out the sun um, for months and made it cold and rainy all summer long. Um, so... Um, so if you're in the hills of Switzerland yeah. and it's cold and rainy, you're basically stuck inside all day. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So Mary, Percy, and their son William, as well as Claire, traveled to Lake Geneva, 
uh, to spend the summer with Lord Byron. Who, as you'll recall, we discussed before Mm. when we spoke about vampires. He was kind of the prototype for the original romantic vampire figure Mm -hmm. that we think of today. Well-dressed. Yep. Um... Uh, what's the word? Um, um, wealthy, mm-hmm. hair slicked back, very pale. Yeah. Tuberculin. Yep. You know, all the classic Dracula stuff. Um, so Byron was also just like the most notorious playboy of the time. <laughs> Had so many affairs with so many different women. Um, several of whom were like high-ranking aristocratic. <laughs> so he yeah. like was uh, infamous. Um, so speaking of his affairs, um, Claire had been having an affair with Byron and was pregnant with his child. <laughs> Jesus, they're like the friends people where everybody's had sex with everybody else. Yes. Yeah. Except for nobody's on birth control. And so there's so many pregnancies. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. It's just not a great idea. Um, so Byron and his physician, uh, John William Polidori, uh, rent the Villa Diodati. And Percy rents a smaller Maison Chapuis near, uh, nearby um, on a lake in, on Lake Geneva. Um, and yeah, since it rained so much, uh, they spent a lot of time indoors. It was very dark and moody. And so they, they whiled away the time reading German ghost stories around the fire, which I mean, we covered some of this story before. Um, but it was a while ago, so I'm doing it again. Um, so, <laughs> so Byron... Um, suggests that they each write a ghost story, uh, which is where we get this vampire story that is uh, written by John Polidori, called The the Vampire. vampire. Yes. Um, Polidori was the dentist, right? um, A doctor? Doctor. Yeah, he was a doctor. I don't know what all his speciality was. It was probably a little bit of everything. Well, and I think dentists back then were were, were, um, barbers. There were well, there was the done. barber surgeon. Um, Didn't I they handle know. rotted teeth as well? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Someone's regardless. Someone might know, and he's probably yelling at us. It's fine. Um. Anyway, so he's the doctor. He writes the vampire, um, and I think I don't think any of the other ones are really well known, except for obviously Mary's contribution. Um. And, but it took her a while to kind of think of a story. And then one night, um, as they they kind of um, had this conversation about the nature of life, and Mary uh, has this idea that perhaps a corpse could be reanimated through some process like galvanism, um, which involves electricity. And that's a new, uh, I mean, galvanized metal is what basically she's talking about. It's where you kind of electrify a plate of... Uh, metal. I think it can be any kind of metal, really. And it yeah, becomes... copper. You can galvanize copper. You can galvanize mm-hmm. um, tin, I think. nickel, tin, aluminum. Yeah. <laughs> I yep. don't know. Yeah. So uh, that uh, that kind of makes sense if she's comparing it to galvanism. Why she would have this idea that like a spark of um, energy from electricity uh, would reanimate a heart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and certainly that's basically what we do when we're doing the paddles. Uh, it's just... Remember, this is considered the original science fiction. Mm-hmm. So should we take things that are based in scientific fact, like the fact that you can send a spasm of electricity through a heart to make it convulse and mm-hmm. pump, mm-hmm. Uh, animating it. Um, it's also a little bit... Uh, 
at the time, sorry, and like I said, I know a lot about this novel. Sure. Because um, I really fucking love it. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> another scientific fact of the era was plasticization. Mm-hmm. Um, plasticization was new. It was uh, the ability to embalm to such a degree uh, that bodies could be um, stripped of their skin and shown, you know, all of the nerve systems intact sure. uh, for generations. And uh, plasticized um, wonders would actually tour fine houses. Uh, they would fill, like, for house parties, there would be a display of plasticized, like, cats and hogs and well, things like that. Well, that's basically what the bodies... It's um, exactly the same thing. Exhibit. Yes, Bodies Revealed is a very, very, very famous, uh, very popular traveling museum exhibit that we've hosted here a couple times in Grand Rapids. Which is super problematic. <laughs> so problematic because the bodies that are being revealed are Chinese prisoners. Yep. And they did not consent to having their bodies treated this way, nor yep. their families be given the opportunity to bury them. Yep, 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 yep. So you cool, should cool, cool, uh, cool, 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 cool. not support that exhibit. <laughs> yeah. Please don't go see it if it comes into your town. Yep. Anyway... <laughs> that was a fun song. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, so again, uh, science fiction is taking science fact mm-hmm. and adding fiction to it. So it, it feels more rooted in reality. Mm-hmm. And people, like, when you have that element of realism, like how everybody kind of freaked out at the Blair Witch Project. Right. Because the filming was didn't have that wall of yeah. this happened on a soundstage. Felt more real. Um, feels more real, feels more relatable. Maybe taps into things that you've wondered yourself. Think about how many people had dead mothers back then mm. who were wondering if there was ever a way to bring their mom back. Mm. You know, like what a what a primal instinct to want your mom with you yeah. alive. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in, in this age of missing mothers uh, and missing children, mm-hmm. uh, think of how many people would have wished for that and mm-hmm. wished that there had been a way. Yeah. And now they've got this story in front of them where it's kind of possible mm-hmm. and the facts a little bit check out if you're not that all that familiar with the whole, you know, how this would actually work thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the key to a good uh, science fiction story is that it's just plausible enough to be... To be know. almost believable, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, she has this kind of idea um, and then uh, this is as she uh, writes it in her... Um, in an intro to the novel that she wrote decades later. So like this has kind of been mythologized by her. So who knows how accurate this is. Um, But she writes that um, she became possessed by her imagination later that night and experienced a waking dream. Quote, "Uh, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy half vital motion frightful must it be for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world now that Mm -hmm. takes us into another one of the themes of Mm -hmm. frankenstein and that is um the natural sublime Mm mm-hmm so the natural sublime sounds like it's, oh, look how pretty everything is. But mm-hmm. what it really is, is, oh, my God, look how dangerous and awesome nature truly is. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the natural sublime or the romantic sublime uh, kind of looks at the frailty of humans compared to these mechanisms of the world and God. 
um, and, and what has been created and what can tear you apart, mm -hmm. like the beauty of a mudslide and stuff like that. So, right. um, and there's, you know, I'm, I'm boiling that down. It, it's a very complicated idea that I've boiled down to a couple sentences. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are people who are screaming at their um, devices right now that there's more to it than that. And you're right, there is. Uh, but for our purposes, here you go. I like that we uh, assume that our audience is smarter than us because it, cause many of them are. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. No, okay, so this is just a piece of Kate, of Kate Reed life advice for you. Uh, you should always be the dumbest person in your friend circle. Yes. Like, I only surround myself with broads who are smarter than me. Jen <laughs> is smarter than me, guys. I know. Well, that's debatable, um, but... No, it's science. <laughs> okay. So anyway... <laughs> You should all like this. The only the only thing that I will say I'm smart about myself is that I surround myself with really smart people. Yeah. Um, yeah. You should always uh, be able to point to someone who's smarter than you. That's a good rule of life. Amen. Do not get too big for your britches. Um, anyway. So. Yeah. Um, yeah so she uh, starts writing what would become. Uh, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, which I believe, mm. yeah, that's, which is such a good uh, subtitle. Uh, yes, because, it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, so and so well thought out, and there's so many layers to it. So many. Because she was a genius. It's so good. Uh, yeah, she. It takes her about a year to write it, um, and it's published anonymously in 1818, um, and. And readers initially assumed that the author was Percy uh, because he wrote the preface and it was also dedicated to his uh, hero, William Godwin. But, you yeah. know, if you know that that's also her father. Papa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's eventually uh, revealed that it's her. And she does become famous in her lifetime, so don't worry. Um, uh, do, do, do. So uh, they, you know, over the course of time, I'm kind of, gonna play fast and loose with uh time changes now because we've gotten to the most interesting part but i just want to wrap some things up um so they end up back in england um but had to leave soon because percy was in danger of being thrown into debtor's prison uh which is kind of a running theme for him uh they travel to italy with claire and her new daughter alba uh who is you know the child of her and, and byron um, and so they're traveling to Italy to deliver Alba to her father, Byron, who said that he would raise her as long as Claire had nothing to do with her. Um, and also he renamed Alba uh, Allegra because Yikes. he's full of himself. <laughs> so, hmm. Um, so Mary and Percy had another daughter named Clara or Clara or however you want to pronounce that. Um, but both uh, Clara and her and their other son, William, died like sequentially in 1818 and 1819 um which yet again was very difficult for mary to deal with um they do have another son uh, named percy florence in, in 1819 so this is yet again when you have a very healthy sex life and do not have any birth control um yeah. You end up having five fucking kids. Yeah. 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 Uh, and in 1822, she has a miscarriage, uh, which almost killed her, um, except that Percy sat with her in a bath full of ice to staunch the bleeding, and that helped keep her alive. Jesus. <laughs> so he does care about her. So it's that's. Not for me, that pregnancy. It's no. Not for me. I was, as I was writing this, I was like, this is going to be Kate's worst nightmare. Yeah. Um, but I just, it's such a running theme in her life that I didn't want to, like, leave it out. So, yeah. 
Um, so in July of 1822, Percy and his friend um, Edward Williams, uh, they, they went out frequently on, on a lake on a boat, but they went out one particular day. Um, this is still in Italy, by the way. Um, and they get caught in a storm and actually all perish. Um, so uh, Percy was 29, which is terribly young. Um, yes. Think about, like, basically how much he did in just 29 years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was honestly shocked. It's like, okay, so also to back up, uh, Mary wrote Frankenstein when she's like 19, 20. Yes. Yeah. Which she was young. Wild. She was so young and so is he. And, and he, I mean, I, I skipped over all of his writings because he's not the main story here, but he, I mean, he was a, well-known poet at the time so uh he was very accomplished for his years as well but still ran into debtor's prison constantly which is why your parents even if they (laughs) you know bring on the poet as their deputy or whatever Mm -hmm. do not want you to run away with the poet girls and guys no yeah yeah very very tumultuous up and down life he had um and not very long. Um, but Mary, uh, she returns to England and and continued to have a successful writing career. Um, her son Percy is the only one of her children to survive childhood um, and, you know, live to be an adult. Uh, she, uh, as she lived, uh, she carried on her mother's legacy of supporting women who uh, society disapproved of. Um, she had some, uh, like, short flirtations with other men but never remarried never had another lover um and like i said before in 1831 she wrote an introduction to frankenstein explaining the inspiration for the story um and uh she died on february 1st 1851 after a prolonged illness um, that was suspected to be a brain tumor uh she was 53 um wow. which is not old but like not at all it's i mean considering how young percy was it's it's still has that kind of feeling of like i lived another right. 50 years it's uh, like that old um uh louis ck who i recognize as a problematic asshole yeah uh he had a joke about how if he dies at 50 like mm-hmm. everybody's like mm, all right you know like <laughs> you didn't have a great run of it but you know, nobody's going to feel too bad for a dead 50-year-old. So I think that was true back then, too. Yeah. I mean, I think I think nowadays 50 is pretty shocking. I think, and I don't want to say there's like a common trope that like, oh, back then your, your average age was 40. So you were an old man when you were 30. And that's just not, right. definitely it's not. It's not average work, guys. Like humans have always aged at the same rate. Uh, but... <laughs> But yeah, and so 50 was young, um, but it wasn't quite as shocking as it is now because she cancer treatments were even worse back then. Right, right. Yeah. So um, on the one year anniversary of her death, her son, Percy, and his wife, Jane, um, they opened Mary's box desk for the first time. Um, and inside, they found locks of her dead children's hair, a notebook she shared with Percy, um, her husband and a copy of his poem Adonai Nice. I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> um, with one page folded around a silk parcel containing some of his ashes and the remains of his heart. 
Wait, hang on. The, oh, wait, sorry. What was that last thing? Were you looking something up and not paying attention to me? <laughs> well, no. Uh, okay, I, I got caught up on the word that you were trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Is it A-I-D-O-N-E-A-U-S? It's A-D-O-N-A-I with a two dots, S. Oh. Adonais? I, I, think that's, um, Adonais? I think that's the Roman name for Hades. Okay, that makes sense because I've seen other Tumblr... Uh, uh, posts about like her being very goth and carrying around Percy's heart in a. <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah. I I thought it was like, like she carried around Percy's heart like like, like she carried around Percy's heart like I carry around Dan's heart, in that he loves me and I have his heart no, and no. he has mine. She literally carried around the re- physical remains of his heart. How did she fucking get those? Well, she had, I mean, they... They wouldn't even let me keep my tonsils. <laughs> Different time, man. Different time. Um, yeah. So she, uh, she, as they were cremating him, she's like, hang on. Let me get Let me that. just reach in and grab let this. Let me get that heart. Carry on. <laughs> um, yeah. Holy shit. So goth girl till the end. We yeah. We I really, I always thought it was metaphor. I really always thought it was metaphor. No, no. Quite literal. <laughs> well, that brings us back to the plasticization that was so popular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I imagine it must have been preserved somehow or else it would have been pretty disgusting. Do you think there's pictures of it on the internet? I hope not. Oh my God! Is there? Is this it? Oh, these are skull. This is somebody has pieces of his skull in a New York. What? And here's the heart. What did they even cremate then? It's like a little... Peter dish. Yeah, I- She's got a little heart-shaped Peter locket dish with a chunk of actual heart inside, Yuck. according to this. Yuck! To, to, uh, uh, let me see. Okay, she kept something she thought was the heart. Ugh! Okay, well. What on earth was we're it? We're gonna go with she, it was definitely his heart. Alright, so if anybody wants to see this, AnnaMazzola.com forward slash did Mary Shelley keep Percy Shelley keep Percy's heart. Uh, Anna A N N A Mazzola M A Z Z O L A. Uh, definitely go check that shit out. Thanks Anna Mazzola for being my pocket goth. Wow. Okay. So cool. She grabbed a piece of the cremated flesh. Probably wasn't the actual heart, but it might have been something. Yeah. Gross. All right. Super fucking gross. <laughs> like, I love Dan. I love him so much. I don't want that. No. No, I wouldn't want that either. But she did. She did, and she and she kept it that whole time. How romantic. I, I kind of love her. Yeah, me too. Like, way to just, like, really go for it. Like, she's not, like, a hot topic goth. No. She, like, paved the way. She is the original goth girl. Um, Bronte sisters, get out. I mean, they came after her, so I guess they can share credit for, like, the second goth girls. But, like, right, Mary right. Shelley is the queen of goth and science fiction. And she had such an interesting life, even from such an early age. Uh, so I'm a huge fan and like this is the same time as Jane Austen too, which always blows right. my mind. Like put this up to next to sense and sensibility. Like Yeah, I think we all have this like kind of view of the Regency era that's like very Jane Austen y, but then you have to remember that like Jane Austen was the daughter of a pastor, so she was like very <laughs> Yeah, her her life proper. was very squeaky clean. Um all of her 
like heroes are fairly religious mm-hmm. and like I mean Edward Ferris is literally wants to yeah be yeah. a minister so it's just like very different uh two people two women uh authors at the same time um so yeah that's all I got on the history of Mary Shelley um I love it so shall we turn it over to past me uh where I interview the wonderful uh Nora Uncle about her film A Nightmare Wakes fantastic showing now on Shudder on Shudder All right. Hey, everyone. It's Jen, and I'm so excited uh, to welcome a guest on this episode. Uh, Today, I'm chatting with Nora Uncle, uh, writer and director of a new historical horror film, uh, A Nightmare Wakes, now available to stream on Shudder. A Nightmare Wakes tells the story of Mary Shelley and her inspiration for writing Frankenstein. Um, I've seen it twice now, and it's fantastic. It hits all of my favorite sweet spots of horror film. It's moody. It's beautifully shot. It has a kick-ass female lead. It's historical. And if you want to, wa- if you watch very closely, you'll catch a glimpse of me. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Nora, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, Jen, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Nightmare Wakes. Um, well, actually, I want to start before then. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so you uh, wrote a horror film. So I assume that you have some kind of interest in the genre. Um, so what can you tell? Like, what's your history with horror? Is that any um, personal favorites you have? Yeah, I came into horror kind of later into my life. Uh, my producing partner Devin Shepard, she is a horror fanatic. She, you know, you name a horror film, no matter how B-list or how indie, she has seen it and she has an opinion. And so she really inspired me to think of horror beyond what I'd always thought of it as, which, you know, was so wrong. And she really inspired me to see it as a medium that allows, especially independent artists, uh, to express themselves and kind of experiment. And that was really cool for me. And I realized that, you know, some of the films that I'd grown up with that I would hadn't necessarily associated as horror films were very much horror films. You know, so I grew up with a lot of kind of classic films. So some of the Universal Monsters, of course, as well as Hitchcock being a huge influence. And I would argue that a lot of his films were early horror and because of their psychological psychological natures and because of how much they were talking about the human condition and the darkness that comes with that. Um, but then I think what really inspired me in modern modern years, my goodness, in more recent years have been the kind of twist of horror that again are going this psychological, very um, character-driven route. Films like The Witch and uh, Hereditary and Midsummer and, and these films... Ooh, it follows, right? The, these films that really kind of, again, talk about the human condition and and the evils that come with that, but do it in a way that doesn't necessarily require some of the more, you know, stapled pieces from early 80s films, such as misogyny, boobs, and a huge amounts of gore. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for the gore, and, and sure. but I, I, can, I can do without the misogyny. So it's been fun to see this new age of horror come mm. into play. Yeah, that is, I think, oh my gosh, that hits so much of what I 
think about horror. Like I, I'm also a recent convert. I always found um, horror films to be too scary or too taboo. Um, and so recently I've been really just kind of like letting myself, uh, you know, be like, yeah, I am interested in this stuff. And, um, and but I, I totally agree. Like the more psychological stuff, it really is, I think, the most interesting. And I think horror does a really good job of exploring those topics um, in a way that other genres don't. Yeah. Wow. So that's very cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, so when, how did you kind of um, fall on this topic? What kind of inspired you to kind of look at Mary Shelley and her life and, and the story of Frankenstein? Let's see. So it was about eight years ago and I got trapped in my apartment during Hurricane Sandy and I had basically nothing with me. I had a copy of Frankenstein and a couple candles and that was about it. That's really the best right? like way to read Frankenstein. <laughs> Honestly, really. I mean, because I hadn't read it before, uh, mm-hmm. this being my first experience, it was perfect. You know, it was storming outside. I only had candlelight to read by and mm-hmm. I scared the bejesus out of myself. Like, oh my goodness. And, but it was actually when I read the foreword that Mary actually wrote, I think about 15 years after the publication. And her foreword talks about this really amazing dark and stormy night, you know, the the classic tale that basically she's turned into myth through this uh, foreword that is the meeting of Lord Byron and, and Percy and, and Polidori and all of them together with Mary. Um, but it also mentions some of her miscarriages and the loss of her children. Mm-hmm. And I immediately put put the book down and was like, wait a second. So a 19-year-old girl suffering from miscarriages and deaths of her children and basically plagued by death her entire life, she came up with a story that was about giving life without having to give birth. How in the heck have we not talked about that? How have we removed Mary so far from her story, which is so inherently feminine and mm-hmm. so much about a mother and the loss of, of dignity and, and life um, throughout her life that it was, it was baffling to me. And, and then, you know, of course, mostly knowing Frankenstein through the Universal Monsters films and where they even go further to silence the monster and, and completely eliminate some of the deepest elements of the original novel. Mm-hmm. that I felt like that needed to be fixed immediately. And I, of course, once the internet came back on, went deep diving into everything and anything that I could find about Mary Shelley and, and really trying to get to know her as a person and understand her voice. And after doing that, really, I, I reread Frankenstein again, and suddenly the creature's words, suddenly it's longing and it's desire for understanding and acceptance and um, to be taken seriously suddenly were mm. Mary's words. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so I don't want to like get too spoilery, but like the connections that you drew in the movie, like between how Mary's feeling and how the monster's feeling like that's, I think something that I've never seen before. And I'm not like, you know, extremely well-versed in the Frankenstein, like, you know, genre because it's basically like its own thing it really is yeah um but yeah like and and i you know after watching the movie i was like you know wow this is really it it's 
the things that she went through that, you know, as you just described, I like I went on my own deep dive into the, <laughs> the history of Mary Shelley. Like she had such an extraordinary life and such she went through so much at such a young age. Right. I didn't the fact that she was nineteen <laughs> that's mind oh blowing. Right. <laughs> yeah. And um the uh, I mean the legendary story of like that the the year without summer like that I I didn't know that either until recently like the year that they that you know they were in having this you know mythical house party was basically because of a volcano eruption <laughs> half a world away right yeah yeah I mean it kind of I mean it kind of makes you think about like the stuff that we're going through now and how like you know we'll we'll get into it but like how you know, you you were inspired to write this uh, film by you know being deprived of power, you know, and and because of a natural phenomenon, and and so is Mary Shelley, and now we're going through something again, and it's kind of like, you know, sometimes you just like I hate to like put a silver lining on things, but like sometimes you just need things to be like stripped away in order to kind of like really uh, think about things. <laughs> oh, absolutely, I completely agree. Yeah, and I, I think that is. One of the elements, I, I mean, I was also, I wasn't 19, I was 20 years old when I started writing this. And so because of those incredible similarities between our experiences when first putting pen to paper, I, I think that also really lended to me feeling a, an emotional connection to Mary. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can feel that. Um, and that was one of the main things that I noticed when watching the film is that, um, and I think, you know, this really speaks to the power of perspective in writing. Um, but your your take on on Mary Shelley and on Frankenstein is so decidedly from the feminine perspective as opposed to, you know, decades of <laughs> male written and directed stories and horror stories and and as you're saying before, like the the misogyny that's run rampant and and not just the horror genre, but you know, film in general. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like what um uh so like I, I can I could see a lot of the kind of perspective that you had on writing this and 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 as you said Mary had on writing Frankenstein. So what what were some of those like thought processes that you went through when you were kind of uh, deciding? Because you know you did make some small changes in timeline and stuff, <laughs> but like which is totally fine. Like I, I don't care. Like, That's nice to hear. Histori- <laughs> a lot of historians get very up in arms and pressed about historical changes but like they need to get a life but um (laughs) so I I just want to hear a little more about like bringing kind of like your perspective to Mary's story and like why it's important for for these like female written stories to be told if you want to speak to that so definitely there were some historical liberties that were taken um you know a lot of those were just necessary in order to tell Mary's story in an hour and a half. Um, you know, I, I actually studied history as well in college along with film and music and history and historical accuracy is really important to me. Um, some might not agree after seeing the film, but I, I, I mean, agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, but the choices that were made were very, very purposeful. They were a focus on what was Mary feeling and what was Mary experiencing? It really came down to coming to her emotion and what I was interpreting based off of her letters, her journal entries, the novel itself, what she might have actually been 
emotionally going through in order to turn these horrific traumas into, you know, a novel that has lasted two centuries. And some of that was obviously a condensing of the timeline. Um, a lot of that also had to do with budgetary limitations. Uh, sure, you know, yeah. would I have loved mm-hmm. to go about around all of Europe the way that Mary did and shooting her her wonderful tour and, and go back to England and these beautiful houses they lived in? Yes, of course. My gosh, I would love to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't what the story was focused on. What the story was really focused on was bringing Mary back into the forefront of her own narrative. It was mm-hmm. about recontextualizing Frankenstein and the story that we've essentially really turned into a male story for so long and remind audiences that this came from the head and the heart of a 19-year-old girl shortly after, you know, a seven-month miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, imagining for me that pain and that kind of destruction on one's psyche, especially at a time when you're being told that anything that goes wrong with a pregnancy is your fault because you're a woman, especially mm-hmm. in a time when your husband is, you know, supposedly the most free thinking, most, you know, forward thinking person in the world, but who is cheating on you with every person imaginable, including your own sister, you know, yes. and just what could possibly be going through the head of that woman, who also I should mention is the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, one of the first true mm-hmm. feminists mm-hmm. and very outspoken feminists, and William Godwin, who is also a feminist and very much worked within Mary Wollstonecraft's world. And so a daughter of those two people being surrounded by the world that she's surrounded by and plagued by death, mm-hmm. how could her, and specifically her female experience, be interpreted within this novel? You know, when somebody asked me, you know, do you think she ever considered writing the protagonist as a woman in order to, again, recenter this on the female story? And I'm reminded of the fact that she had such an impossible time trying to get this published even with her own name mm. on it. Yeah. That imagine a woman, you know, during Jane Austen's time that's trying to write a novel not about romance and finding a husband, but a female protagonist that's digging up dead bodies from graves and, and bringing life back to them. Society was just not ready for that at that point. They were wrong, and obviously we know that from from history and the fact that it's still such a lingering tale. But I think that's why, especially modern female artists, we have, uh, for those of us who are also addicted to history, a, a sort of responsibility to remind people that history has been written by men mm-hmm. and that there are other lenses that we can be looking at it through. And and I think it, it brings a really beautiful new way to read Frankenstein and see that from a lens that we might not have even thought of before. Yeah, that's, that's so fantastic. I love it. Um, and yeah, the, your point about how she was, you know, not Jane Austen like that's for so long (laughs) I just like had this entire like disconnect where you know Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and Jane Austen exist in two entirely separate realities when like they're not (laughs) you know like same period basically yeah same exact period and if you think of like you know recently the the new thing on Netflix um 
Bridgerton, you know, right. takes place in 1813 and it's all, you know, foofy dresses. And I love Bridgerton. Oh, I love sure. it so <laughs> much. <laughs> but like the fact that that takes place, you know, three years apart from, you know, Mary Shelley uh, being inspired to write Frankenstein. It's just like you, you have a hard time like making even people who know history like have a hard time making it fit right. together in their brains. And I think you're totally like I, I was just thinking like why why didn't she write it for like – from a female perspective, but you're totally right. It's just wouldn't society wasn't ready for it, Ugh, right? <laughs> Which is so dumb, <laughs> so dumb. But that's why we can fix it now, right? That's why yes. we can can remind people that while these two protagonists might be male, that there's really inherent feminine themes that are running through everything that they're mm-hmm. saying and everything, especially that the creature is fighting against um, yeah. throughout the whole and thing. The fact that she she like. Had it be about like the spark of life and creating life from a man's perspective of like what a man would do to create life. Like right. that's who Re- oh boy. Like removing birth from the entire situation, coming from the woman who has been plagued by not being able to give birth properly, basically, who 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 mm-hmm. sees birth almost as e- equal to death. Um, I think it's kind of a funny like a little bit of a fuck you to men, I think, from Mary Shelley to be like, yeah, this is what would happen if you tried to take control of <laughs> the whole birthing process. Like this is what would happen. Like that, I, I don't know for a fact that that's what she was thinking when she wrote Frankenstein, but I, a little bit. I love that. Because like one of the, the, one of the major takeaways I, I had from, from A Nightmare Wakes was just like, wow, Percy Shelley was such a fuck boy. Like what? <laughs> that's exactly true. And, and actually, I, I think that's where I've gotten some a lot of pushback from historians. Primarily, oh, really? is in the treatment of Percy, and mm. you know that was it was always interesting to me because I we I couldn't present a man that was such a piece of shit that we would judge Mary for being with him, you know, right? But a lot yeah. of what Percy did in reality especially to modern standards, is so horrific that you're mm-hmm. it's hard to not judge him. And <laughs> so with the film, it was really about finding this balance with how can we show this man for his faults, but also show that he did truly love Mary and he did mm-hmm. think he was doing well for her. He was trying to help her, but he was also swimming in his own sea of patriarchy and didn't know how to look past that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Like any, I mean, (laughs) men try so hard, Um, (laughs) but I feel like if you're friends with Byron, you know, like you gotta have a little bit of shit going on. Like it's fun to read about Byron now as a woman who Mm -hmm. never had to meet him and, Mm -hmm. and think about him as this just fun, eccentric character that's breaking social norms. And I love the fact that of some of the social norms that he and Percy were breaking and, and considering, you know, their their conversations about religion and their conversations about sexism in general, like, is wonderful, especially for their mm-hmm. time. That said, Byron, who was also bisexual, right, he was sleeping with literally anything that moves in Europe. Yeah. Just like, yeah. you name it. He'll sleep with it and he probably might have a kid with it too and do literally mm-hmm. nothing to support that kid. Mm-hmm. And yeah, exactly what you said. If, if this is Percy's best friend, uh, you know, 
maybe it's a little bit of a red flag yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. You know. So uh, I think we've, I mean, we've talked a lot about um, kind of what was going on in the history of it, which is all all incredibly fascinating. Um, so the reason why I'm speaking you, with you today is because uh, you decided to film your wonderful film at. Hyde Hall, Hyde which Hall. I've mentioned before on the podcast, but uh, when I was in grad school, I lived in Cooperstown, New York for two years, and Hyde Hall became somewhat of a second home to me, mm. and I love it. Um, and so what? how did you even find Hyde Hall? Because I know some people know Cooperstown. People who know baseball know Cooperstown, but like it's kind of the middle of nowhere, too. It really so, is. It, yeah. It's like... It was beautifully idyllic for this film because of that, because you really didn't have to interact with any other humans for basically a month. Um, But yeah, let's see. It was when we start when we started taking this out. You know, there was always the idea, like, oh, maybe we can go to actual the actual village Yadati in in Switzerland, or maybe we could shoot this in in England or one of these manor homes. And of course, budgetary limitations as they were, and and again with wanting to kind of put together our New York team. Uh, A lot of our crew were from NYU that Devin and I went to and and got to work with previously. So it was kind of a beautiful way to keep our team together. Um, But we started looking all around New York and even the entire East Coast, just looking for any homes that uh, might fit this timeline. And, And shockingly in America, it's very hard to find. Um, especially anything kind of pre-Civil War is, is right. very rare. Um, but hilariously, of course, uh, we see Hyde Hall and we're like, mm, that looks really, really nice. We really like that. Mm-hmm. And Devin and I went on a road trip for about a week just checking out different places. And we uh, were driving up to Cooperstown and suddenly the clouds opened up and it was just a downpour and oh my um just pouring gray day and we see the the lake and it just looks like a direct image out of frankenstein it just mm. looks like something that mary wrote herself and then we get there and the the team at Hyde Hall John Maney especially you know he met, met with us and he was so intrigued by the idea of what we wanted to do and he showed us around the house and and it was just there was no question that was it mm. this was our place and it, it kept getting better and better as we were there you know there was mm-hmm. cuz we probably talked to John about 2 years before we ended up actually shooting there and so we were doing some pre-shoots there on the occasion we were checking in often and you know there was things were obviously changing as the script is changing and molding and there was a point where we we're like, oh, okay, John, do you know of any, you know, cottages nearby? We need a cottage mm-hmm. that we're going to shoot in. He's like, well, do you, do you want to shoot in the cottage side of the house? You could use that. Right. And we're like, right. yes. Wait a second. <laughs> Wait a second. That's perfect. And we're like, do you have, do you have, a, do you know where a chapel might be? We need a chapel. And he's like, oh yeah, we got a chapel in the house. You want one? Yeah. And, and we're like, Okay, and he's like, "Oh, by the way, I don't know if I told you this, but there's a there's a portrait of Byron in the study, um, an original portrait of Byron. If you want to go check it out, it's a little, a little cameo kind of thing. And no, it's not a cameo, but it, it you know, it's a small right, little right. thing. It's small guy. Um, and and he's like, it's an original. And we were like, what? You know, and there was just these pieces like that that just kept aligning so perfectly that it was just it felt like destiny. It felt like we have to shoot here. This is obviously our spot. This is obviously mm. um, the the place to bring this to life. And then it just became 
more wonderful and more wonderful, which is never what you say as a filmmaker shooting in a historical location. But <laughs> but it actually, it just became more and more wonderful with every day that we were there because the entire team of, at Hyde Hall basically became crew members. You know, they, they essentially really took on this project as part of their own and, and really welcomed us in such a beautiful way while also keeping us, you know, respectful and and mm-hmm. um, caring of the house. And I think that also was a testament to the crew where I might have scared the bejesus out of them at the top where I was like, this is a beautiful, perfect house and we are not mm-hmm. the ones who are going to damage it. We are not <laughs> doing that. <laughs> no, you definitely did a great job um, imparting that on your crew because um, funny enough, uh, one of the things that did get broken on set was by me. Oh, no. <laughs> I uh, I I sat down too a little too hard on a chair and oh, it kind of kind of snapped and I swear the prop master was like oh gonna yeah. just put the fear of God in me and I was like it's okay like weirdly enough I'm trained to handle these things <laughs> which was actually perfect right because yeah. like that was I'm sure we'll get into it but you know a lot of the people that are also in the film are actual historians and people that mm-hmm. that have so much respect for the location and the, the the props and furniture that we were able to use. So, yeah, I, the film, simply put, could not have been made without the support of Hyde Hall. They're, like, the amount of, of support and, and material that they lent to us to be able to make this thing a reality was incredible and mm-hmm. so generous. And whenever there was the tiniest of little accidents that happened like my heart broke a little bit inside because I was like John I'm so sorry I'm so sorry please still trust us we're not going to let anything more happen um and and luckily he he gave us that trust and and you know we were able to end the whole thing with on such beautifully amicable terms and everybody Mm. you know again horror stories can absolutely happen especially in these um historical locations so oh yeah I was just so pleased that we ended everything on such a high note and everybody was so pleased and the house is unbroken and very mm-hmm. wonderful to visit. And I highly recommend that. Yes. Yeah. This is our, uh, our plug. <laughs> you find yourself in Cooperstown. Uh, just go up to Heidel. It's so funny that you said like the, you know, that you had scouted it and it was like pouring rain. Cause like, I feel like on <laughs> to anyone else, <laughs> that would, that would be like, Oh, this place is miserable. Right. Exactly what you wanted. <laughs> yeah. I saw that. I was like, this is it. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the high hall is really, I mean, it is really unique. We're not, we're not kidding. Um, but like, it was funny how it worked out perfectly that it like worked for both locations. I think <laughs> this is a problem unique to me, which is the first time I saw the film, I was like confused because <laughs> I know that it's one house. So <laughs> I was like halfway through, I was like, oh, oh, they're in a different you're supposed to be in a different place. So got it. Got it. Right. Oh, gosh. Right, that must okay, have been okay. – yeah, that same for me because, you know, to, to people who don't know this, right, the, the cottage, Mary's mm-hmm. Cottage and Byron's Manor are one and the same. And it's just, yeah. right, the, the porch. It's just, that, a, just a trick of just of a filmmaking. Yeah, filmmaking trick. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, that was definitely something that we had to work hard for because while there is definitely different architecture between the two – areas of the house and, and different furniture. Um, it was something that we had to be very careful of in the edit um, to make mm-hmm. sure that it was clear that these were two distinct places that, yes. you know, and I think a lot of us had that hard time of like, I don't know, it does it seem different does it, or does it seem the does same? Because to us, it's all the same because you just walk down that set of stairs and you're in that house. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The geography of that house is also 
completely bonkers, but it takes you a minute to kind of understand where you're going, which I, as someone who had to walk around during ghost tours, oh, which the ghost, which is so perfect. <laughs> and I mean, well, there you go. That's a perfect uh, example of of other people that helped us, other uh, beings that helped us mm-hmm. along this film, right? Where those those ghosts that like to kind of pop up and and yes. keep us on our toes. <laughs> Yeah, so I was I was gonna bring this up. Um, so Hyde Hall, I think I've I'm pretty sure I've told some of the stories on this podcast. So if I'm repeating myself, forgive me. I'm not gonna retell the ghost stories, but like, it is I think in my limited experience, 100% certifiably haunted. Oh yeah, um, and I know I heard some stories from some of the crew. I'm curious if you have any any stories. Um, I think the the. Most – I heard a bunch, and I think some mm-hmm. of them were also, like, people being excited about being in a haunted house, of course. Sure. Uh, yeah. But there was some – I remember one time where we were shooting with Alex, and mm-hmm. um, we were in the hallway, the uh, pieces of Mary's nightmare, her actual nightmare mm-hmm. throughout the film. And she's in the hallway with a single candle. And again, like, you know, we really did only have about four lights for this entire film, right? Yeah. So. This really was lit by candlelight pr- primarily. And so she's in this really dark hallway where it, you know, because there's so much movement and there's some smoke going on, we couldn't actually have um, our whole crew in that hallway. So it's basically Alex, myself, and my DP. And we're mm. there and and everybody else is kind of like jumping in and out of, of doorways hidden within the hallway. And we're shooting her kind of looking around, experiencing the nightmare. And suddenly she just screams and jumps and, oh my god! And we were all like, "What? What? What? Hey, are you okay? Are you hurt? What happened?" And she's like, and she like points directly behind Oren and I at like at a window that's behind us, and she's like, "It was there, the ghost. Oh my god. It was. It, I oh just saw god. her, and and it sounded like she was the the maid, the or the um the nurse ghost. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. I've never heard this story before. Yeah, and it was just so crazy. And it, of course, we were completely behind schedule, and so we were like, "Go, go, 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 go! We'll deal with the ghost later." <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> Keep going, but use it, use it. <laughs> but it was actually something that um, you know really kind of became important to both Alex and you mentioned our prop master, who um, Deidre is, is also actually a witch and our was our historical magic consultant. And so, oh, fantastic. And so, uh, for the two of them, they were really kind of paying attention to the energies, paying attention to kind of Mm. what was uh, happening around the house. And um, because this nurse ghost had something to do with children, had something to do with childbirth, especially Mm -hmm. Alex was always very careful before some of these childbirth scenes that we did in the house where she'd kind of say to the room, like, I'm pretending, I'm acting. Thank you for whatever support you have here. It was so hilarious, but also like, Everybody was with it. Everybody was like, yeah, yeah, talk to the ghost. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. You know, and Deidre yeah. went around and actually, like, brought crystals to kind of, you know, cleanse the house, not of mm-hmm. the ghosts, but just to make sure that the the spirits were aware that we uh, meant no ill will. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows if any of that made a difference or whatnot. Um, I think it probably did because mm-hmm. if nothing else, it really it kind of – kept everybody on their toes and and not scared of these spirits but more intrigued by them (laughs) yeah yeah I think it kind of it gives everyone a a little bit of like energy I think when you're in that kind of space I know my uh my friends uh who were also studying museum studies and had uh had been in that house frequently uh were scared out of their wits (laughs) 
to be like running down dark hallways. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> because this house has, I think, electricity in like one or two rooms. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. The rest is unheated. No electricity, no lights. It's all all natural, baby. Like, oh my God. I remember there was a time where I had to try to find John just to mm-hmm. chat with him after the sun had gone down. And all the crew were out in the barn having dinner. And I was in the house and John had basically gone through shutting down the house. And so all the shutters mm-hmm. were closed and everything. And I had forgotten my phone, of course. So I had no form of light. And oh no, it I was so terrified. Like nothing happened, but it was just – it was actual pitch black, you know, because like this mm-hmm. house is actually in the middle of nowhere and coming from somebody who lives in Brooklyn is used to lights everywhere, you know. Um, it's actually in the middle of nowhere. It's actually pitch black on top of a hill. And inside, there, like when the shutters are closed, it just is a haunted house. It just okay. straight up is. And I remember like looking through being like, John – John, like barely above a whisper because I was like, I don't want to wake anything. <laughs> well, at least his name's not George because then you might get the wrong person to respond. <laughs> Very true. Or the wrong cat as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> Everyone there is named George. All the ghosts are George. All the ghosts are and George. And the cats. The local cat is George. Um, yeah, yeah. So like the, the area back where you set up um, the wardrobe department, I like, and, and also speaking of the nurse, like, there's a there's a stairway that you use in the film that's right by the nursery, right. which is one of the most haunted rooms. Oh, you can in feel the it. House. You can feel you it. You can feel it. I so I, I I was doing ghost tours and I was I was uh I was pretending to be a ghost. I did spook a lot of people who went on that tour, um, at, but I would have to like wait in like certain areas of the house by myself. Nope. Uh, sometimes I would, I had a candle that I would hold and sometimes it would be lit, but sometimes it wouldn't be. Um, and I would, ha- I would like stand with my back to the nursery and be like, oh my God, please, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Oh, nothing happened. Gosh. I would also stand like further back in that corridor down where the wardrobe was and just like pitch black, just waiting and just being like, no, <laughs> nope. nothing happened, please. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and actually, you know, uh, with Nightmare, we actually shot the uh, a bathtub scene um not mm. to give spoilers a bathtub mm-hmm. scene in that nursery um oh my gosh <gasps> ooh and it's all ooh. yeah yeah <laughs> so there's a lot of layers to that one right there and and mm. definitely a layer of spookiness there's yeah i remember there was just something about that particular stairwell we see mary run up and down it it's the stairwell that um is we use as the stairwell within mary's cottage and we had to shoot quite a few things around that area. And there's actually just like this one area in that top landing. Once you get up the mm-hmm. stairs where you can just feel something mm-hmm. run down your spine. You're just like, Ooh, the energy is different right here. And I, it was so yeah. funny because I had about six different crew members say that to me completely separately, like not having oh. any idea that anybody else said it. And everybody just felt this weird energy right there. And so it was Ooh. kind of perfect. Cause we have kind of a piece of the climax and a piece mm-hmm. of all of, um, you know, these kind of pretty important scenes are around that area. And I think maybe they, they, soaked up a little bit of the eeriness from the actual mm. house who knows i i think so yeah, <laughs> well, <thank> yeah. <laughs> um so speaking of giving energy to uh, a film uh what is it about like 
what like when you're thinking about horror film like what is it that's like the scariest to you like yeah you know I think one of the reasons maybe again that I wasn't totally connecting to horror until more recently and as I've opened up to it uh was because the fear base was really um much more of a physical base you know I think it was one could even argue maybe more of a male fear than necessarily Mm. based in female fears. And, you know, for me, um, where I find fear is in um, psychological manipulation, is in gaslighting, Mm. is in in these torturous thoughts of, you know, that Mary even goes through of questioning one's sanity versus reality based off of, you know, outside forces. And, and so I really find that there's so many other layers to fear, um, than we have even really fully explored in the horror medium. And, Mm -hmm. and I think even going back to the original Frankenstein, right, it, that wasn't even necessarily, a a, it is a horror story, but it's not a horror story based in, you know, kind of the monster flick that it has become. It was a, a story that was completely terrifying because of its dread because of this unclenching um, tension that something Mm. was going to go wrong at all times. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a tension that a lot of women especially can talk about as just part of their daily lives. You know, there's this Mm -hmm. inherent tension of just walking outside and walking past a construction site and worrying about what people are going to say, you know. And, And I think there's this, yeah, this unexplored layer of fear that is inherently both female and I'm sure men experience it plenty as well, but it is much more psychological. It's much more about kind of, um, about trauma and how one can, um, deal with that, you know, and, and with nightmare itself, I think I really also want to explore those other feminine horrors of, of, that I think all of us, especially ones who have not had a child yet of like, giving birth and Mm -hmm. severe miscarriages and the idea of being in a world where, where doctors had no idea how female bodies worked and, and being at their mercy, you know? And and I think it's much more centered around those kind of inherently feminine fears of, you know, both physically in terms of, of what's happening to bodies and how those bodies are used by men and used by ourselves as well. Um, as well as the psychological elements that go with that, which are, you know, the fear of not being taken seriously, of not being heard, of not having a voice, the fear of being gaslit and being tricked and told one is crazy and, and being manipulated. So I really was wanting to explore these other forms of fear that weren't necessarily, you know, um, somebody coming at you with a knife in a shower. Right, which I yeah, also love. Yeah, I mean, those are those are great, and I think there's a time and a place for those. And I, but like, I think one of the brilliant things about your film is that it's it doesn't rely at all on jump scares. It's all it's all psychological. It's all that feeling of dread. And I was just thinking as you're talking, there's like this one kind of, you know, it's a, it's kind of a minor plot point in the scheme of things. But like, there's this part where she finds out she's pregnant again and she goes to Percy and she's like, how are we going to pay for this child? Right. And I was like, first of all, relatable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I think people, I think women of our generation are kind of, we're not so much afraid of like dying in childbirth anymore, but like the financial strain right. of like, literally, how am I going to pay for this? Right. <laughs> um, right. How are we going to, you know, actually 
live with this decision and not just, mm-hmm. you know, like Percy kind of flippantly says like, oh, we'll make it work. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's a very uh, – a woman thing is to <laughs> right. to like think more practically about it and be like, yeah, that's great. You know, like, well, yeah, we want children, but like literally how are we going to pay for it? Right, right, <laughs> right. So, yeah, that was, that was a very interesting kind of a small part of it. But I mean, it's – fills me with dread. Uh, yeah. So. Well, no, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that you noticed that because I think, yeah, that connects also to Mary's position in life at that time, right? In that she wasn't able to really make money for herself. In And, you know, her mother had broken the rules and started, uh, you know, that process of actually allowing women to have more of a, a trade. Um, but it was still unheard of. And her mom was still being considered crazy for doing that. And so Mary was really in this position of, complete reliance on Percy getting his shit together or her dad taking her back. And imagine doing that while you have some a lot a life growing inside of you and having already had multiple ones die or or both inside and outside of you. It, it's that's terrifying because because what if you do succeed at giving life to this and then you can't yeah. keep it alive. Um, And you have no control over it or your life. So Mm -hmm. I've noticed a lot of reactions to the film, interestingly, in in a a lot of male reactions that aren't finding it necessarily scary. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of female reactions are, again, not necessarily finding it those those jump scares or anything like that. But they are finding more of this kind of inherent dread, uh, this kind of haunting feeling of, ooh, that was uncomfortable and scary to me, you know, it. And I think even some of the assault scenes that are brought in, while not necessarily directly correlated to to uh, historical events, are both an implication of kind of their double meaning within the novel, as well as to show kind of Mary's ex- increased powerlessness of of being able to have even her own body bodily autonomy. Mm, yeah, yeah, because I think that's. That's one of the scariest parts about being a woman is just that feeling of powerlessness. And like at that time it was, you know, even more so. Um, so right. just, yeah, just to like point that out and make it part of it. And part of the story is I think just so brilliant. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so you, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, you're, well, I don't, I don't know if we were recording or not, but <laughs> I know that you've been working on stuff during this pandemic. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious if you're, if you want to share what you've been working on or what, what's next for you, um, after this. Sure thing. Yeah. This pandemic has been obviously very tragic and, and not a great time for people. And right. <laughs> my condolences to everybody kind of suffering through this, which means the world. Um, but for me, as a writer who is very introverted, uh, it's been a really, really wonderful time to be creating. Um, and so I've, I've really kind of dedicated myself to trying to write as much as I can during this time. Uh, so right now, kind of my big project, my, my next thing, it, it's called Ashes. And it's another film that is a historical horror film. It's probably more directly horror than Nightmare is, uh, but it centers around Scottish folklore and uh, particularly a banshee character. Oh my gosh. Fantastic. <laughs> so, you know, some more lady stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then there's another one that I'm actually in a lab for uh, that I'm writing. It's called Bruja and it's a modern, I know, shocker, modern uh, horror film 
that is set in Mexico. And the title kind of gives a little bit of an implication of what it's about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so there's been kind of those. And then on the lighter note, I'm writing a children and children's animated movie to try to break myself out of all of that darkness. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good palate cleanser. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so really kind of uh, going back to a lot of my fairy tales and folklore and mythology that um, I see Frankenstein as its own form of that and, and mm-hmm. kind of diving into some other areas um, to try to find some more darkness to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that sounds fantastic. I'm I will be very excited to learn more about it when when more happens. Um, and I I mean I expect great things. Uh, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> uh, but but seriously, I, I did really I really loved the film. Um, I hope um, it, if you're listening and you're interested in Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and historical horror, um, please check out uh, A Nightmare Wakes on Shutter, um, the wonderful streaming service that has. <laughs> all their favorite horror films. Um, so yeah, check it out. Uh, and if you catch a glimpse of me, let me know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm on screen for like maybe two seconds. Yeah. You have, you have a couple of moments in there. It's, that's true. It's that's funny true. because I, I, you know, it's great to see your face again after, after a little bit of time because yeah. I've been staring at it for so long in the film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I always feel sorry for people for film editor. Well, my partner, David's a film editor. Oh, so yeah. like, I feel like you, the editors and like the post process is where you really get like very intimately familiar with everything that's on screen. Absolutely. So. The, it was so funny. My, my editor would often when when we did meet cast in person, he'd be like, "Hi, oh my gosh, just loved it, everything about," and would be so familiar. And they'd be like, "Who are you?" <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just been staring at your face for for hours, for hours, and then they'd be like, "Oh, great!" <laughs> like, thanks so much for making me look really good, you know. But yeah, but it is funny. Yeah, you get very intimately involved with these with these characters, having never met the actors. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Um, well, thank you uh, so much for speaking with me today. And thank you for allowing me to play a very small part in your movie. Uh, it was the most fun I've had. Uh, oh, thank so. you. Thank you for being a part of it. And thank you for being such a, a wonderful smiling face during those very slightly chaotic uh, group scenes that we got to do together. They were so much fun. Uh <laughs> I would I would not trade that for the world, even oh. if they took ours. It was fine. Yeah, <laughs> same it. here. It was a blast. It really was. So thank you, and thank you for having me. Okay, well, that was... Uh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yes, Kate, you heard it, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're certainly not recording this before I've heard any of it. No, no, no. Um, but I heard it because I was there. And so thank you. Thank you again to Nora so much for speaking with me. Um, again, such a delightful conversation. I really enjoyed the hell of it uh, out of it. And I hope you all did too. Um, I could have talked with Nora for hours, but I wanted to not take up all of her time. Okay. So um, we have some patrons to thank yay thank you guys yay um so we have linda drake thank you to linda thank you linda um and um 
we have Emily Lowry, who I don't remember if she was a patron before and edited or if she's new, but we know you. Yeah, we know you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, again, we always say this, but thank you so much for supporting us with your money. Literally um, keeping the podcast going right now. We appreciate so it. So much to us. It's all, um, it, it all goes to Danny, and I'm sure Danny appreciates it too. <laughs> uh, if you want to see what we do on uh, Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash this podcast is haunted. We have a really fun um, idea for uh, the February video that we are going to be recording soon. Um, so stay tuned for that. Psst, what's our idea? Oh, I'll tell you later. Oh, okay. Uh, we talk- <laughs> <laughs> we, you know what it is you just don't remember right now right um, so there's things that happened and then i was in the hospital and i can't remember anything so you have to fill me in i will tell you uh but just know it's great um and if you want to find us on social media there are things are listed in the description so just look there um we'll see you in a fortnight yeah, we will see you then and until then fortnight okay. oh uh uh stay spooky motherfuckers yeah Is it weird that I forgot her catchphrase for a second? Not at all. Jesus. (laughs) 